I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 Chronicles 16. If you are using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 347. We're in 1 Chronicles 16. We are looking at verses 8 through 36. I have entitled the sermon this morning, A Song of Thanks. And the key words for our worshipers in training are thank, glory, and sing. Today we are continuing our series on the songs of the Bible. We're not looking at every song in the Bible, but uh, many of them. Um, the song here, David's song in First Chronicles 16, um, is a song, simply, a song of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is fundamental to the Christian life. It is an essential element of what it means to be a Christian, to be thankful. If you are familiar with Romans chapter 1, you'll know that it is one of the key, rather thanklessness, it's one of the key failures of humanity listed by the Apostle Paul. He says that the wrath of God is poured out from heaven upon those who, although they know God, they fail to honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And that's humanity on its own. Thankfulness is not something that comes naturally to us. It's something we must learn. And that is basically the big idea this morning that I want to offer to you from this passage. As believers, we must learn to be thankful. And this song exemplifies how to promote thankfulness in our lives as we consider who God is and what He's done. As we read through it, you'll notice that David is not really making any necessarily logical arguments in these verses. He's not, it's not a major didactic teaching point where he's like, here's point one, point two, point three. He's, his heart is simply erupting in praise to God. And so he repeats himself a few times and is just going um, above and beyond to express his joy and delight and thanks to God for what he's done. And to understand what he's so particularly thankful for, we need to go all the way back at least to the book of, of Exodus and something called the Ark of the Covenant. Many of you are probably familiar with the Ark, um, but if you are not familiar, here's a brief summary of what it is and why David's so thankful at this moment. When God delivered Israel after 400 years of bondage in Egypt, he brought them to Mount Sinai and formally established them as his covenant people, his special people. He gave them laws prescribing how they were to live with him, how they were to uh, receive pardon for him when they failed to live uh, up according to his law. Uh, And one crucial aspect of Israel's time at Mount Sinai was when God gave them the instructions for building up the tabernacle. Uh, This was the place where God would dwell with them. He would dwell in their midst. And in the innermost part of the tabernacle, where the 
the Holy of Holies, where God's presence especially resided, was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a box overlaid with gold with two guardian cherubim on top of it, and uh, they were guarding, as it were, what was inside. A golden jar full of manna, the budded staff of Aaron, the high priest, and the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Well, when they, they leave Sinai to set out for the Promised Land, and after a lot of sin and wandering around kind of uh, aimlessly because of their sin, they wander in the desert, uh, Israel finally comes to the Promised Land, and dri- they drive out many of the uh, pagan, uh, heathen inhabitants of the surrounding nations, but they don't drive all of them out. So this leads to constant conflict between uh, Israel and the surrounding nations. One example would be the Philistines. If you recall in 1 Samuel chapter 4, there was one particular battle where Israel was especially humiliated. They lost about 4,000 men. And so they decided to bring the ark, to take the ark, into battle with them as a good luck charm of sorts. Perhaps it's needless to say, but things do not go well for them. Um, They are soundly defeated despite their, their superstition and witchcraft, or maybe because of it, and the Philistines actually end up stealing the ark, taking it captive for themselves. Fortunately for Israel, and unfortunately for the Philistines, God was not interested in the Philistines keeping it. Uh, and this is where we get the uh, kind of awe-inspiring but also slightly hilarious story of Dagon, one of the Philistines' deities, where he falls down over and over again before the ark uh, as if he's paying homage to it. And eventually, they go in each day and they have to set him back up and it's kind of humorous. Well, the last day they go in and his arms and his head are lopped off in a brutal and humiliating destruction Um, served cold by the Sovereign Lord. Well, the Philistines at this point realized that they didn't need to keep this thing. Uh, So they give it back to Israel. Israel, however, when they get it back in their possession, they simply leave it in a private house. Um, uh, The guy's name was uh, Aminadab, and uh, and they leave it in this place, um, Kiriath-Jerim, instead of bringing it back to the tabernacle, which at this point, it seems, was really had been dismantled. Uh, the public worship of God, by the time we get to 1 Chronicles 16, uh, has been um, inter- intermitted and abandoned for about 20 years. The people had sunk into gross idolatry, and during the days of King Saul, David's predecessor, they had made no efforts Uh, to bring the ark back where it needed to be. But after David is established king, the ark is returned. In in 2 Samuel 6 or 1 Chronicles 13, you can read of the the account where Uzzah reaches out to stable the ark that's being transported on um, a cart. After the oxen uh, stumble, he wants to keep it from falling, and um, he instantly dies in his arrogance and careless transportation of this ark. And this leads David to hesitate a bit. He, in moving the ark back where it needs to be, Uzzah dies and David decides he's going to leave it with a man, Obed-Edom. 
Well, three months later, he sees Obed-Edom just flourishing. He's having lots of good fortune, and so David wants in on the actions. He decides, now it is, okay, it's time to bring the ark to Jerusalem and place it in a tent, uh, where eventually he would, we would wait for the, the building of the temple. And so this is what has just happened previous to the passage before us this morning. The, the ark has been brought back to Jerusalem and we've set it up under a tent. And so David bursts into song. As I said, he's not logically working his way through some argument here. He's simply exploding in joyful praise and thanksgiving to God. And as we consider this song, while there's not a kind of didactic flow to it, there are some important emphases that he makes in it that I want to consider with you this morning as we think about promoting thankfulness in our hearts. First, verses 8 to 13, we will see David proclaim the work of God. Second, in verses 14 to 22, we will see David remember the word of God. Third, in verses 23 to 36, we will see David prescribe the worship of God. So David proclaims the work of God, he remembers the word of God, and he prescribes the worship of God. First, in verses 8 to 13, we see David proclaim the work of God. I'll read those now. He says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him, sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. So David, in this song of thanksgiving, expresses his gratitude that the Lord has brought back the ark where it belongs. And he exhorts the people to give thanks to God, to call upon His name, and make known His deeds among the peoples. When we think about what does it mean to be thankful, what does it mean to give thanks, um, looking here in these verses, it means that they should sing. Thanksgiving means that they are to sing and to tell of all His wondrous works. They are to rejoice, seek the Lord in His strength, and remember His wondrous works, His miracles and judgments for the sons of Jacob, His chosen ones. Well, what, what are these deeds, these wondrous works that Israel is to proclaim? Because we've really only we've mentioned one in particular, bringing the ark back. And I think that's the immediate issue at hand, that the context indicates that that's what David is is talking about. God's providence to bring the ark back, not only to Israel in general, but to Jerusalem, the capital city in particular. But beyond that, there's a lot. Even just up to 1 Chronicles 16, the Bible at this point has put the Lord on 
a wonderful display in his workings in the world for his glory and the good of his people. Consider the story. In Genesis 1 to 2, God creates the world and establishes man in it as his image bearers and vice regents to rule and reign over the created order. In Genesis 3 through 11, we see the fall of the human race into sin and the drastic consequences that result. And yet, we see that God promises to redeem humanity from their sins through the offspring of the woman. In Genesis 12 through 50, God calls out uh, a, calls a man out of darkness and out of a, a, a sinful pagan life, and He promises to make him into a great nation from whom the Redeemer promised in Genesis 3 would come. In Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, we see God fulfill His promise to Abraham, this, the pagan man now delivered. We see Him fulfill this promise and he, to rescue His people from bondage and slavery and establish them as His own special nation through whom one would bring redemption. In Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, in the first chapters of First Chronicles, we see God give His people a land in which to dwell and a king under whom to serve. He delivers them from their enemies and continues His promised faithfulness to them despite their many failures to love Him and honor Him as they should. So with this incredible story of the workings of God in mind, David erupts, bursts, explodes into song. And he urges the people to talk about what God has done. And this, I think, leads to a notable point of application for us. God's people are to know and proclaim the work of God. How familiar are you with the story of the Bible? Imagine for a moment that you are on an airplane. And if that strikes fear in anyone's hearts, then imagine some other mode of transportation. But you're with, next to someone, maybe you don't know them. But you're reading your Bible. The person next to you, maybe he or she, is, he's never read the Bible. Perhaps he's not even that familiar with it. And he asks you, Please, tell me the story of that book. I don't need every detail, but I want, I want the basic outline. Just tell me what happens A to Z in a summary fashion. What would you say? Could you do it? Do you know the work of God in redemptive history enough as revealed to us in Scripture to tell it to someone else? Could you give a summary of each book of the Bible. Beyond that, do you know how each book of the Bible relates to the other books in the Bible? Uh, this week, actually I think it was last week, in small group we were, we were talking about how many of us grew up without a clear grasp of how many parts in the Bible related to the whole. How do the parts relate to the whole? Have you ever memorized a Bible verse completely out of context and really had no idea how it related to the larger story or the argument of the book or how it related to the whole story of the Bible? What about not just individual verses, but entire stories? 
For instance, I get that Jonah was a rebellious prophet, swallowed up by a big fish, vomited out on dry land, who eventually preached to a pagan nation, and there was massive revival, even though he was furious about it. But what does that have to do with the overall story of redemption? Why do I care about Jonah? Or Samson, I get it, he had long, luscious hair. And he was super strong. And then he cut his hair for a woman and was no longer strong. But again, what does that have to do with anything that anyone should care about? Specifically, what does it have to do with Jesus? Aren't all of these stories supposed to be about him? And speaking of Jesus, what does Jesus have to do with the 39 books of the Bible that precede him? Now, let the hearer understand, every page of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is especially about Jesus Christ, is full of Jesus Christ. But if we don't know the overall story, and we don't know how the parts and the whole relate, we have no shot of seeing him in the story. And we're not going to have a clue what the actual few books that talk about his life on earth, we're not going to have a clue what to do with those. We have the entire canon of special revelation to know and proclaim, not just up to first <coughs> excuse me, not just up to first chronicles sixteen. We have the gospel in full, not in shadow. Jesus wasn't just a good man who came to show us how to live and how to be kind. He came as the fulfillment of God's word to us. And he came to deliver us from the just wrath of God. That we had brought upon ourselves because of our sins. And so we, with David, need to learn to remember God's work and proclaim this majestic story to the world. Well, second, along similar lines, we need to remember God's word. We are to to know God's work and to remember his word. And here in verses 14 to 22, I want to note two things. Let me read those verses first. He says, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember His covenant forever. The word that He commanded for a thousand generations. The covenant that He made with Abraham. His sworn promise to Isaac, which He confirmed as a statute to Jacob, as an everlasting covenant to Israel, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. When you were few in number and of little account and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. So as I said, there are two things I want to see in these verses as we think about remembering the Word of God. First, I want to consider the command itself to remember the, the word, to, to remember the covenant, to remember the promise. Second, I want to note the surprising nature of that 
promise, that covenant. So first, we are to remember God's covenant, His Word. David urges the people to remember the covenant God made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he gives the content of that promise in verse 18. He says, I will give to you the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Now, what do we do with this? Because we ain't in Canaan anymore. I think it's simple, really, what we, what we do with this here. David is calling to mind a specific promise at a particular time when that promise was needed and particularly useful. Israel had just brought the ark back to Jerusalem after 20 years, and David reminds the people to remember that this is exactly what God had promised to them. Reestablished in the ark in its proper place was a confirmation of God's promise to them that he had in fact given them this land. This is quite instructive for us. I have not personally counted up all of the promises in the Bible, but from some research, I believe there are 5,467 of them. Almost 5,500 promises. And according to Paul, 2 Corinthians 1, every single one of them is a hearty yes and amen to those who are in Jesus Christ. This is a really good thing because there are at least as many problems that we seem to face on a daily basis. So we need to learn, like David, that specific problems require specific promises. Another way to put it is that your ability to receive comfort from the promises of God is directly proportional to your ability to remember specific promises that God has actually made to you. Take, for example, one of the most central promises in the Bible. But perhaps a broad one. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You can find this in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 31, as well as in the New, Hebrews 13. God, believer, will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That promise, I think, covers a lot of ground. It's got legs to run. Are you hungry? God will never leave you. Are you in the dark? God will never forsake you. Are you lacking assurance that your faith is enough? Are you under attack and feeling defenseless? Are you dying? Are you lacking wisdom and you don't know what to do next? Are you weak and powerless? God will never leave you. See, it does a pretty good job of meeting you in just about any struggle you might be in. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. But what if we get even more specific? Think for a moment with me. And we're going to do this real briefly with each one of these. But I want to think about Jesus' seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. In John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That sheds all new light, all new kinds of light on hunger. Are you hungry? Jesus is the bread of life. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have 
the light of life? Are you struggling to see the way ahead because of surrounding darkness? Jesus is the light of the world. Third, in John 10, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Are you lacking assurance that your faith is enough? Jesus is the door. If you have entered by him, you will be saved. Two verses later, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He knows his own, and he lays his life down for the sheep. Are you under attack? Are you feeling defenseless and overpowered? Jesus is the good shepherd who willingly lays his life down for yours. Fifth, in John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Are you dying? Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Six, in John 14, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Are you lacking wisdom and you don't know what to do next? Much like the disciples were in John 14. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Are you weak and powerless? Jesus is the vine. Abide in him, and you will bear much fruit. Now, admittedly, each of these statements, each of these applications of these promises needs to be worked out far more than we just did or could do in one sermon. But I hope it makes the point well enough for now. We see David apply a specific promise of God that he had promised to them the land, He applies that specific promise to this particular situation. And he rejoices in God fulfilling that promise to him. So like David, we must learn to look to specific promises in God's word to combat the specific tribulations we face and to celebrate the specific victories that we're granted. Well, second thing under this heading is, is the surprising nature of this promise. So we're supposed to remember it. And one thing about it to remember is how shocking it is. This is what we saw in verses 19 to 22. You were few in number and of little account. God made this covenant with Israel even though they were few in number, of little account, sojourners in the land. God's promises are made to us, not because of anything specific in us, but because of His good pleasure to do so. They are yes and amen in Christ, not in us. Believer, the promises we just looked at in John's Gospel and the other 5,460 that are contained in the rest of Scripture... They are all yours. And it pleased God to make them. And it pleases Him to keep them. God does not grudgingly remain true to His Word. 
God is not in heaven thinking, why, why, why? Why did I have to make such extensive promises to these people? Anyone who would believe can be saved? Are you kidding me? That guy? Her? Can't I break my promise just this once? Look at her. She did it again. I'm sick of it. He's failed me yet another time. God forbid. That is the farthest thing from the Lord's mind. And we know this. Jesus is plain in Luke 12, 32. He says, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Do you hear that? It is God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is His good pleasure to fulfill His promises in you. And that brings us in the third place to David's prescription of the worship of God. See this in verses 23 through 36. He says, Sing to the Lord all the earth. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And He is to be held in awe above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy because sing for joy before the Lord. For He comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Say also, save us, O God of our salvation, and gather us from among the nations, that we may give thanks to Your holy name and glory in Your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. So here in David's prescription of God's worship, we see um, three things that that I want to mention under this heading. Three things that ought to characterize our worship of God. First, we are to worship God alone. Second, we are to worship God in holiness and with trembling. Third, we are to worship God. Sorry, our worship of God should have global proportions. So we worship God alone, we worship Him in holiness with trembling, and our worship should have global proportions. In verses 23 to 27, we see our first point. We are to sing to God and declare His glory. Why? 
because He is great. He is worthy to be praised. He is to be held in awe above all gods, for they are idols. Nothing. Vanity. God made the heavens. He is arrayed with splendor, majesty, strength, and joy. We are to worship God alone. Second, in verses 28 to 30, we see that we are to worship God in the splendor of holiness. We are to worship worship God according to the glory due His name. The message here, I think, is simple in these verses. We are not to approach God in worship according to our designs, our, our schemes, and in our own right. God has plainly expressed in His Word how He is to be worshipped. And it is according to that prescription that we should come. You know, I think, I think we live, I assume you would agree, we live in a fairly casual culture when it comes to the worship of God. Based on what you can find in, in many churches um, in our area or our, even the nation as a whole, I think a lot of people allow themselves to think that we can approach God in any way our hearts desire and it's like His job or something to forgive us, accept us, and welcome us. The condition of our hearts, however, as we approach God in worship is immensely important. It's not the condition of our clothes, perhaps, that matters, but our hearts. When you come to worship on Sunday or you approach God in the Word and prayer in private or with your family throughout the week, how is your heart? Do you come casually? Or do you see God as holy and full of glory and strength? Do you seek to live a holy life before Him in the power that the Spirit supplies? Do you come trembling before your Maker, yet with a bold confidence because of Christ? Or do you stroll into His presence with no consideration of the pure insanity it is that we are granted an audience with the King of Ages? We are to worship God as He has prescribed and Certainly here we see that that means we come reverently. And we come honestly. Well, a third uh, point under this, this heading to consider, verses 31 to 36, is that our worship should have global proportions. Uh, in reality, this point could have been uh, a major, just, we could have considered that as a major theme running through this whole um, song could have been the major point of this sermon. The universal proportion of God's reign is scattered all throughout this song. In verse 8, make known his deeds among the peoples. In verse 14, his judgments are all are in all the earth. In verse 24, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. Verse 28, ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse 30, tremble before him all the earth. And then in verse 31, David's, this theme can't be contained any longer. He hits full throttle. And he calls on the heavens, the earth, the sea, the field, the forest, to rejoice, exalt, and sing for joy. Why? 
because God comes to judge the earth and His steadfast love endures forever. God saves His people from among the nations that they might praise His name among the nations. Our worship of God is ought to recognize that God is not a local deity confined to one place. We worship with the saints in all the world this day. As we think about the worship of God, I'm going to speak a word, a brief word, to anybody here who's not professed faith in the Lord Jesus, who's not embraced Him as the Lord and Savior of your life. If you've not put your faith in Jesus, I want to ask for a moment of your attention before we close. My friend, Jesus offers Himself to you now. You've been living a life where you are at the center. And that's a temptation we all face. I get it. You live perhaps for the praise of man or the fulfillment of your own particular lusts and desires. Or you live out of a fear of failure. You are wandering around hungry, blind, on the outside, with no defenses, inching ever closer to your eventual death with no power or direction. Jesus promises to be food for you, light for you, a door for you, a protector for you, life for you, the way for you, and power for you. Will you have Him? All of us here now, will we have Him? I pray that we would look in simple faith, trusting in His life, death, and resurrection to deliver us from the penalty of our sins and to make us right with God.